Chapter Five of the Millionaire Baby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Millionaire Baby by Anna K. Green. Chapter Five. The Old House in Yonkers. The old man, whose handwriting I had now positively identified, was a former employer of mine. I had worked in his office when a lad. He was a doctor of very fair reputation in Westchester County, and I recognized every characteristic of his as mentioned by Miss Graham, save the frenzy which she described as accompanying his address. In those days he was calm and cold, and, while outwardly scrupulous, capable of forgetting his honor as a physician under sufficiently strong temptation. I had left him when new prospects opened, and in the years which had elapsed had contented myself with the knowledge that his shingle still hung out in Yonkers, though his practice was nothing what it used to be when I was in his employ. Now I was going to see him again. That his was the hand which had stolen Gwendolen seemed no longer open to doubt. That she was under his care in the curious old house I remembered in the heart of Yonkers seemed equally probable. But why so sordid a man, one who loved money above everything else in the world, should retain the child one minute after the publication of the bountiful reward offered by Mr. Ocumpaugh was what I could not at first understand. Miss Graham's theory of hate had made no impression on me. He was heartless, and not likely to be turned aside from any project he had formed, but he was not what I considered vindictive where nothing was to be gained. Yet my comprehension of him had been but a boy's comprehension, and I was now prepared to put a very different estimate on one whose character had never struck me as being an open one, even when my own had been most credulous. That my enterprise, even with the knowledge I possessed of this man, promised well or held out any prospects of easy fulfillment, I no longer allowed myself to think. If money was his object, and what other could influence a man of his temperament, the sum offered by Mr. Ocumpaugh, large though it was, had apparently not sufficed to satisfy his greed. He was holding back the child, or so I now believed, in order to wring a larger, possibly double, amount from the wretched mother. Fifty thousand was a goodly sum, but one hundred thousand was better, and this man had gigantic ideas where his cupidity was concerned. I remember how firmly he had once stood out for ten thousand dollars when he had been offered five, and I began to see, though in an obscure way as yet, how it might very easily be part of his plan to work Mrs. Ocumpa up to a positive belief in the child's death, before he came down upon her for the immense reward he had fixed his heart upon. The date he had written all over the place might thus find some explanation in a plan to weaken her nerve before pressing his exorbitant claims upon her. Nothing was clear, yet everything was possible in such a nature, and anxious to enter upon the struggle both for my own sake and that of the child of whose condition under that terrible eye I scarcely dared to think, I left Homewood in haste, and took the first train for Yonkers. Though the distance was not great, I had fully arranged my plans before entering the town where so many of my boyish years had been spent. I knew the old fox well enough, or I thought I did, 
to be certain that I should have anything but an easy entrance into his house, in case it still harbored the child, whom my partner had seen carried in there. I anticipated difficulties, but was concerned about none but the possibility of not being able to bring myself face to face with him. Once in his presence, the knowledge which I secretly possessed of an old but doubtful transaction of his would serve to make him mine even to the point of yielding up the child he had forcibly abducted. But would he accord me an interview? Could I, without appeal to the police, and you can readily believe I was not anxious to allow them to put their fingers in my pie, force him to open his door and let me into the house, which, as I well recalled, he locked up at nine, after which he would receive no one, not even a patient. It was not nine yet, but it was very near that hour. I had but twenty minutes in which to mount the hill to the old house, marked by the doctor's sign and by another peculiarity of so distinct a nature that it would serve to characterize a dwelling in a city as large as New York, though I doubt if New York can show its like from the Battery to the Bronx. The particulars of this I will mention later. I have first to relate the relief I felt when, on entering the old neighborhood, I heard a response to a few notes of a certain popular melody which I had allowed to leave my lips, an added note or two which warned me that my partner was somewhere hidden among the alleys of this unaristocratic quarter. Indeed, from the sound, I judged him to be in the rear of the doctor's house, and, being anxious to hear what he had to say before advancing upon the door, which might open my way to easy fortune or complete defeat, I paused a few steps off and waited for his appearance. He was at my elbow before I had either seen or heard him. He was always light of foot, but this time he seemed to have no tread at all. "'Still here,' was his comforting assurance. "'Both?' I whispered back. "'Both.' "'Anyone else?' "'No. A boy drove away, the buggy, and has not come back. Sawbones keeps no girl.' Is the child quiet? Has there been no alarm? Not a breath. No cops in the neighborhood? No spies around? Not one. We've got it all this time, but... Hush! There's nobody. Yes, the doctor. He's fastening up the house. I must hasten. Nothing would induce me to let that innocent remain under his roof all night. It's not the window he is at. What then? THE DOOR, THE BIG FRONT DOOR, THE, YES. I gave my partner a surprised look, undoubtedly lost in the darkness, and drew a step nearer the house. It's just the same old gloom box, I exclaimed, and paused for an instant to mark the changes which had taken place in the surroundings. They were very few, and I turned my eye back to fix on the front door, where a rattling sound could be heard, as of someone fingering the latch. It was this door which formed the peculiarity of the house. In itself it was like any other that was well-fashioned and solid, but it opened upon space, that is, if it ever opened, which I doubted. The stoop and even the railing which had once guarded it had all been removed, leaving a bare front, with this inhospitable entrance shut against every one 
who had not the convenience for mounting to it by a ladder. There was another way in, but this was round on one side, and did not present itself to the eye unless one approached from the west end of the street, so that to half the passers-by the house looked like a deserted one till they came abreast of the flagged path which led to the office door. As the windows had never been unclosed in my day and were not now, I took it for granted that they had remained thus inhospitably shut during all the years of my absence, which certainly offered but little encouragement to a man bent on an errand which should soon take him into those dismal precincts. What goes on behind those shuttered windows, thought I. I know of one thing, but what else? The one thing was the counting of money and the arranging of innumerable gold pieces on the great top of a baize-covered table in what I should now describe as the back parlor. I remembered how he used to do it. I caught him at it once, having crept up one windy night from my little room off the office to see what kept the doctor up so late. As I now stood listening in the dark street to those strange touches on a door disused for years, I recalled the tremor with which I rounded the top of the stair that night of long ago, and the mingled fear and awe with which I recognized not only such a mint of money as I had never seen out of the bank before, but the greedy and devouring passion with which he pushed the glittering coins about and handled the banknotes and gloated over the pile it all made when drawn together by his hooked fingers, till the sound, perhaps, of my breathing in the dark hall startled him with a thought of discovery, and his two hands came together over that pile, with a gesture even more eloquent than the look with which he seemed to penetrate the very shadows in the silent space wherein I stood. It was a vision short, but inexpressibly vivid, of the miser incarnate, and having seen it and escaped detection, as was my undeserved luck that night, I needed never to ask again why he had been willing to accept risks, from which most men shrink from fear, if not from conscience. He loved money, not as the spender loves it, openly and with luxurious instincts, but secretly and with a knavish dread of discovery which spoke of treasure ill-acquired. And now he was seeking to add to his gains, and I stood on the outside of his house listening to sounds I did not understand, instead of attempting to draw him to the office door by ringing the bell he never used to disconnect until nine. "'Do you know that I don't quite like the noises which are being made up there?' came a sudden whisper to my ear. "'Suppose it was the child trying to get out. "'She does not know there is no stoop. "'She seemed sleeping or half dead when he carried her in, "'and if by any chance she had got a hold of the key, "'and the door should open? "'Hush!' I cried, "'starting forward in horror of the thought he had suggested. "'It is opening. I see a thread of light. "'What does it mean, Jupp? The child? "'No, there is more than a child's strength in that push.' Hist! Here I drew him flat against the wall. The door above had swung back, and someone was stamping on the threshold over our heads, in what appeared to be an outburst of ungovernable fury. That it was the doctor I could not doubt, 
But why this anger? Why this mad gasping after breath and the half-growl, half-cry, with which he faced the night and the quiet of the street, which to his glance, passing as it did over our heads, must have appeared altogether deserted? We were consulting each other's faces for some explanation of this unlooked-for outbreak, when the door above us suddenly slammed to, and we heard a renewal of that fumbling with lock and key which had first drawn our attention. But the hand was not sure, or the hall was dark, for the key did not turn in the lock. Suddenly awake to my opportunity, I wheeled Jupp about, and making use of his knee and back, climbed up till I was enabled to reach the knob, and turned it just as the man within had stepped back, probably to procure more light. The result was that the door swung open and I stumbled in, falling almost face downward on the marble floor, faintly checkered off to my sight in the dim light of a lamp, set far back in a bare and dismal hall. I was on my feet again in an instant, and it was in this manner, and with all the disadvantages of a hatless head and a disordered countenance, that I encountered again my old employer after five years of absence. He did not recognize me. I saw it by the look of alarm which crossed his features, and the involuntary opening of his lips, in what would certainly have been a loud cry, if I had not smiled and cried out with false gaiety. "'Excuse me, doctor. I never came in by that door before. Pardon my awkwardness. The step is somewhat high from the street.' My smile is my own, they say. At all events it served to enlighten him. Bob Trevitt, he exclaimed, but with a growl of displeasure I could hardly condemn under the circumstances. I hastened to push my advantage, for he was looking very threateningly toward the door, which was swaying gently and in an inviting way to a man who, if old, had more power in his arms than I had in my whole body. "'Mr. Trevitt,' I corrected, and on a very important errand. "'I am here on behalf of Mrs. Ocumpa, whose child you have at this moment under your roof.'" End of chapter 5